Over the last few nights, I've spoken about the five faculties, conviction, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment. The foundation being conviction. We have conviction in the path. We have conviction that it's a good path, that it leads to happiness, that it's a path that we can follow. This conviction leads to effort. And when we know that this is a good path, a path that leads to happiness, a path that we can follow, we make effort. We're persistent in our effort. And as I spoke about last night, our effort goes into the practice of mindfulness in large part. The practice of mindfulness. And it's a practice that requires effort. It's a proactive skill of putting the mind on certain objects, those four foundations of mindfulness, first and foremost, putting the mind on the body through, first and foremost, the breath. Putting the mind on the breath as a way of developing a center in the body and then expanding the awareness, expanding the scope of the mind to include the full body, the full body. The uh, development of the full body is essential to the Buddhist teaching. Uh, it's a key in terms of being able to develop concentration, but also in terms of being able to develop discernment. So we make this effort to practice mindfulness, to put the mind on the breath, to put the mind on the body. But what we find is that it's easier said than done. It's easier said than done. I'm sure we have all found that. We've all found that on this retreat. We've all found that in our practice. We find that it's hard to keep the mind on the breath and on the body. It's hard to stay there. We get it there, it's hard to stay there. The mind, we put it there, it doesn't want to stay there. We don't want to stay there. Now, a good part of the reason for this, uh, I, I would say, I would submit to you, the, the primary reason for this is that it has to do with our relationship with the body. For most of us, we're at odds with the body. So kind of the last thing that we want to do is put our minds on the body because we're so at odds with the body. I remember a year or so ago, maybe a little longer, uh, we were working, I think, with mindfulness of the body uh, in the Thursday class. And uh, you know, I thought I would, we sat and I thought I would start off the class with this idea. Uh, and I think the question that I posed for discussion was, you know, what's your relationship with your body? And, you know, figuring that some people, maybe one or two people would talk about how they're at odds with their body because most of us, that's the relationship. So one person said something about how they were at odds with their body and they were constantly fighting their body and their relationship with their, their body was fraught with aversion. And then somebody else said something and then somebody else said something, and, somebody, and I looked at my watch, and it was like, I don't think we have time for anything else in this class tonight. And it was, it was, you know, it was kind of one of my better moments of kind of going with the flow. It's not like, we've got to get to the rest of the material. You know? Uh, you know, we just kind of went with it. It was so powerful. It was so powerful. You know? And it was so heartfelt what people were saying, uh, this difficult relationship that 
to a person they had with their body. You know, the breath and the body is meant for us to be a home for the mind, but we perceive it as an inhospitable home. You know, a home that we don't really want to spend much time in. We perceive it as a painful place. We perceive the body, when we perceive the body, our thoughts about the body, our perception of the body, is that it's painful. You know, that it's a place where there's physical pain, and that it's a place where there's mental pain, stress, dis-ease, emotional pain, anxiety. You know, this is our relationship to the body. This is how we perceive the body. It's a landscape fraught with suffering and pain. Now, a lot of the reason, of course, why we perceive it that way is that the tendency of our mind with regard to the body is to incline to the pain in the body. Habitually, that's where our minds incline, incline to when we consider the body, when we look at the body, we put attention on the pain in the body. The term the Buddha used, it's the inclination of our awareness. It's the habitual inclination of our awareness. So, you know, we see this in the sitting meditation. You sit down to, to meditate and the mind goes to what in terms of the body? The pain. Oh, my leg hurts, my butt hurts. You know, it's like whatever is painful, you know. You know, for years it was my knee. My mind would go right there. And then it was the neck. Then I kind of, my body was kind of nice. And then it was just the butt, my butt against the chair, you know? <laughs> so this is what the mind habitually does, you know? Or if we're cold, some people were cold this week, you know? The mind goes to the body as cold. Or if we have, if we have uh, a headache, the mind goes to the headache. We get out of bed in the morning and we hit one of the eight beds in our room you know, and, and stub our toe, you know. And then sitting, the first sitting, the mind's going to keep going to the pulsing toe. So our experience of the body is painful. Experience is purposeful, you know. We fashion our experience by putting our attention where we put it. You know, we fashion our experience of the body by putting it on the pain in the body. This is what we do. I mean, Ajahn Lee has the great metaphor. I mean, the great metaphor. Uh, he says, you know, we're like somebody who has a mango. You know, somebody who has a mango fruit, or you can use a peach, your favorite fruit. Somebody who has a mango, and the mango has a bunch of bad spots in it. You know, and the person who has the mango cuts out the bad spots puts them on a little plate, throws out the mango, and eats the bad spots. Yeah. The other meta, one of the other meta, he's a million metaphors for this kind of stuff. Another metaphor is he says, there's a room that has a couple of floorboards that are loose, you know, and then you know, if you step on them, they'll, you know, they'll, you'll trip over and they'll fly up and all this stuff will happen. And there's like five or six of them and you walk very carefully across the room just so you can step on those floorboards, you know? This is what we do. Our minds go to the pain in the body out of habit. So our minds go to the pain in the body, and then we respond to that unpleasant sensation by disliking it. You know? We dislike that pain. Like most of you, you, know, you didn't go to the pain in the knee or uh, the cold and say, oh, I really like this. This is great. 
So we engage in a lot of disliking with regard to the body. Basically, our relationship to it is one of disliking. The Buddha said that, you know, when we have an experience that's unpleasant and we don't like it, we go looking somewhere else for something that's pleasant. You know, so this is sort of what we do as human beings. Uh, We, uh, in general, uh, find the experience of the body unpleasant. We don't like the way the body feels. So, you know, if it's physical or emotional, even probably more than anything emotional, right? So we go looking for pleasure somewhere else. We go looking for pleasure. We go looking for pleasure outside of the body. The body's a painful place. We don't want to be in this painful place. We want to find some pleasure. So we go looking for pleasure outside of the body in all the external sense pleasures. You want to make money in this culture? You know, develop an external sense pleasure. You know, because people's habitual relationship to their experience, their experience of being human is they don't like being in the body. They go looking for pleasure somewhere else outside of the body. On retreat, it's a little more difficult, though, of course, uh, because we put aside so many of our external sense pleasures, right? We don't have... I hope, uh, you know, the phone and all those other things. Uh, So, you know, we do, of course, go looking for different sense pleasures. One of my teachers, Christina Feldman, used to always talk about, uh, and actually I've heard her give some great Dharma talks on the notice board at IMS. (laughs) Uh, You know, people would stand for hours around the notice board, just like reading, you know, like, you know, the map of the IMS grounds, you know, like anything that the teacher might possibly put up there. You know? It was very, she's very funny about that, you know? You know, or or you might be here and you might find yourself engrossed in one of the Quaker flyers. (laughs) It's like, I never realized, you know, this Quaker guy from 1866, you know, whatever. You know, when we don't have a lot of sense pleasures, of course, you know, we go looking for pleasure somewhere else and, you know, in the thought worlds. The Buddha said you either go to sense pleasures or thought worlds to escape the reality, the present moment. The present moment is your body. We go into thought worlds, dream states. We escape the body. We escape the present moment. It's very, very, very important to understand something that the Buddha understood. The Buddha understood that the nature of the human mind is to seek pleasure. This is the nature of the human mind, to seek pleasure. This is the nature of the human animal. You know, our brain is about 95% animal brain. You know, and that animal brain seeks pleasure. You know... We need pleasure. We need pleasure. We seek pleasure because we need pleasure as human beings. This is just the nature of what it is to be a human being. This is where we are on our evolutionary path. Maybe, you know, after many, many rebirths, we'll find ourselves, you know, 8,000 years into the future and we won't need pleasure anymore. 
science doesn't even know why we need pleasure. They haven't really quite figured that out or why we find certain things pleasurable or not, but we need it. You know, they know that, we know that. Tanjef says, without pleasure, we'll die. This is the nature of what it is to be human. We need pleasure. I just find this a very fascinating thing because our relationship to pleasure is such an important aspect of human life. It's such an important aspect of human life, but it's something that's not well understood. It's not something that's not talked about often. It's something that's not really studied. You know, it's not something that you know, the people who are really interested in the human mind and human life really look at. It's really one of the most important aspects of being human. It was something that the Buddha really took a very close and deep look at and developed understanding into because it was, you know, he said, I want to, I'm a human being. I want to find happiness in this life. How am I going to do this given that I am this human being? You know, so he really made a point of it to understand pleasure. He understood the importance of understanding pleasure. I mean, there's been others. Freud, you know, studied pleasure at least for a while. Nietzsche talks a lot about pleasure. There's others, but very few, very few. Some of you know I've been working on this book on pleasure. You know? I just think it's like something that's so important for people to understand more about. And, 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 you know, the Buddha had such an incredible understanding of it. I think it could be so valuable in our world. And what the Buddha realized was that, and he realized from this, his own experience, he saw in his own experience that he couldn't stay present. He couldn't stay in the body because he couldn't resist external sense pleasure. You know, as a human being, we needed pleasure, and he wasn't able to resist external sense pleasure because his internal experience wasn't pleasurable. He understood that we wouldn't be able to resist external sense pleasure unless we had an internal experience that was pleasurable. One of the suttas, he describes his experience. He said, I myself, before my awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, saw as it actually was with right discernment that sensuality is of much stress, much despair, and greater draw and great drawbacks. So when he's talking about sensuality, he's talking about desire for sense pleasure, the indulging in sense pleasure. But as long as I had not attained a rapture and pleasure apart from sensuality, apart from unskillful mental qualities, like the desire for the pleasure, I did not claim that I could not be tempted by sensuality. But when I saw as it actually was with right discernment that sensuality is of much stress, much despair, and greater drawbacks, and I had attained a rapture and pleasure internal, apart from sensuality, that was when I claimed I could not be tempted by sensuality. So it was only until he was able to develop pleasure, rapture and pleasure, that he was able to stay in the body and not get pulled away by wanting to go onto the computer. You know, the Buddha realized that if we were going to stay in the present moment, 
He knew we needed to stay in the present moment. He knew we needed to stay in the body. He knew the way into the body was the breath, but he knew if we were going to stay with the breath, the experience of the breath and the body had to be pleasurable. Had to be pleasurable, given what we were and what we are as human beings. You know, this was the Buddha's great, his, his really his great first great insight, his first great insight as a bodhisattva. The story of him having that insight, you know, and, then, and this is of course after years of, you know, being a prince and having all the sense pleasures of the world and realizing that wasn't the way to happiness and then being an ascetic, denying the body. He had this moment of insight. He says, I thought, I rec-, he said, this is what I thought. I recall once when my father was working and I was sitting and, he, and, he, and he's a child and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree. Then quite withdrawn from sensuality, withdrawn from ment- unskillful mental quality. So he wasn't, you know, indulging in any sense pleasure. He didn't have any desire. He was just like a kid hanging out under the tree. His father was working in the field. I entered and remained in the first jhana, rapture and pleasure, born from withdrawal. So he experienced in the body, you know, because that can be the nature of the body. And, you know, perhaps as children, we experience that rapture and pleasure. A moment of being present and experiencing the pleasure of the body. I entered and remained in the first jhana, rapture and pleasure. Could that be the path to awakening? In question marks. Then following on that memory came the realization that is the path to awakening. That is the path to awakening. So the Buddha realized that the path had to include pleasure. Now that's the moment when Buddhism became Buddhism. That was the linchpin that he that was the missing link. That was the thing that he had to find out. That's when he took a turn away from what he was learning and the practice that he ultimately followed and brought him to awakening. Uh, that's when that began, when he understood that his meditation had to include pleasure, had to include pleasure. It's such a funny thing because in many ways it's the heart of the Buddha's whole teaching and really it's not emphasized and talked about all that much. Certainly it isn't. It's certainly in the West. So he realized that in order to be able to keep the mind on the body, to be mindful of the body, he had to learn to cultivate pleasure in the body and incline his mind to that pleasure. His experience of the body had to be pleasurable and that had to be done purposefully. Experience is purposeful. You know, if you read the Pali Canon, if you read the suttas, you know, even if you skim through them, you'll see that his teaching on pleasure is prevalent through the suttas. I mean, it's just there again and again and again. He talks about rapture and pleasure again and again. It's just the, the Pali Canon is just, it's one of the main threads in the Pali Canon. 
You know, I, I've often talked about how when I started this practice, uh, English language tr translations of the Pali, the suttas and the Pali canon were few and far between, you know, really good readable ones. You know, they didn't really come. The first ones were Bhikkhu Bodhis. I found those a little hard for me to read. Uh, it wasn't really until you know, I began to read Tan Jeff's translations, which came out, you know, mid to late, most of them mid to late 90s, that I really started to see what was in the suttas. You know, I hadn't seen what was in the suttas. I didn't know what was in there. And it was a revelation. It was a revelation. I just was reading again and again and again about the importance of cultivating pleasure, jhana. You know, it was kind of like one of those Zen stories, you know, I was like, I trudged through the forest and I climbed up the mountain and there was the temple at the top of the mountain, you know, and I had to say a secret password and I had to go through these doors and down into the basement, you know, and I went through another door and there was another door with a big metal thing, you know, and, and then there was a, a box, a, you know, a, a trunk, you know, and I had to pry it open. You know, and there it was, cultivate pleasure, you know? I mean, that's kind of how it was. It was like this revelation. It was this revelation to me. You know, we cultivate pleasure in the body through the practice of mindfulness of breathing, the skill of Anapanasate. I mean, if you re read the Buddhist teachings on Anapanasate, he's, you know, it's largely about pleasure. You know, the genius of the Buddha was that he developed a way of putting the mind on the body and including in that process developing pleasure. And he realized, you know, the way to do that was through the breath. You know, this is why the breath is so important, because through the cultivation of the breath, we can cultivate pleasure. I mean, theoretically, you could do it through mindfulness of the toes. You know, that would be harder. You know, uh, it really would be hard to do it through contemplation on a candle or something like that, right? You know, but we can, you know, learn to evaluate the breath and cultivate a pleasurable breath. You know, that's why he has us use the breath, because it's twofold. You know, so first his genius was directed thought, put the mind where? The breath, mindfulness of breathing, that's his practice. And then evaluate the breath in the service of cultivating an easeful breath. You know, somehow he knew that, you know, the breath was really the key. You know, through the breath, we could cultivate ease, which would condition ease in the body and condition pleasure in the mind. And this is why, really, ultimately, the breath is such an important object, and it's why it's the object that we use. So he understood how the mind worked. He understood that in order to put our mind on something, we had to use directed thought to be mindful of something. And then he understood if we were going to put our minds on something, that something that we put our mind on needed to be pleasurable if we were going to keep it there. And then what he realized was that uh, the breath would condition ease in the body and that ultimately what we needed to do was open up our awareness to the full body and cultivate that pleasure throughout the full body so that we really had a lot of pleasure, a lot of pleasure. So the mind would really be 
content to stay right there in the body. Because that's really at the point where the mind says, all right, I'll stay here. This really feels good. The breath feels good. Uh, it'll keep you there for a while. But to get to the level of pleasure you need to really, so the mind really wants to stay there, it needs to be through the full body. You know, then you really get to a real strong level of pleasure. I always say like, you know, maybe it's not as much as key lime pie, but it's, it's, it can compete with it, you know? <laughs> And you don't have to keep buying the key lime pie and, and eating it, and, you know. So we cultivate this pleasant abiding, and the mind stays home. It stays in its home. It's like when I was a kid, I didn't want to stay in my home. It wasn't a pleasant place. I spent as much time as possible out of the house. All I did was dream of the day when I could leave, you know. I mean, that's kind of how our minds are with relationship to the body. You know? So we're cultivating a good home for the mind. This quality of pleasure that uh, the Buddha realized that we have to uh, develop uh, is described by him in his descriptions of the first jhana. The first jhana, the qualities of jhana, we're able, you know, we're able to put the mind on an object, that's concentration. You know, we're able to put the mind there, and then we cultivate, as I said, an easeful and pleasant abiding on, in the breath and in the body, and that really enables us to keep the mind there, and then we have equanimity, strength of mind, we're just completely happy to stay there, you know. That's the first jhana. There is the case where um, the monk or nun, quite withdrawn from sensuality, sense pleasure, withdrawn from unskillful mental qualities, five hindrances, enters and remains in the first jhana. Rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. He permeates and pervades, suffuses and fills this very body with a rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. There is nothing of his entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. And one of the metaphors, and there's various metaphors he uses, but this is the first one he uses. Just as if a skilled bathman or a bathman's apprentice were to pour bath powder into a brass basin and knead it together, sprinkling it again and again with water, so that this ball of bath powder saturates sort of like dough. Think about it that way, like massaging. Saturated, moisture-laden, permeated, within and without, would nevertheless not drip, even so the monk or nun permeates and suffuses and fills this very body with the rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. There is nothing of his entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. I mean, it's pretty clear-cut. It's pretty clear-cut. I mean, he's making a pretty clear-cut statement. You know, this is, you know, the first we achieve, you know, and, you know, we're not so concerned about achieving levels of jhana, uh, but the first jhana is right there when the whole body is pervaded with rapture and pleasure. The full body, all, that's why we, you know, we talk about, you know, all right, where do, where do you feel it? Cultivate it. Now, where don't you feel it? You know, and go into those areas. So the entire body is permeated with rapture and pleasure. So then the energy just moves. It just moves. There's no places where it's cut off. I talked about this, I think, yesterday. That's the first jhana, and really, the Buddha said, that's all you need for awakening. 
That's all you need for awakening. Just one little sidelight, you know, uh, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. I mean, you do that through the entire process. So the entire body is pervaded with rapture and pleasure. Rapture, PT. What is that? Well, that's the physical energy that we feel. Okay, sometimes it's a love. Uh, it may feel like a light or a tingling, but it's an easeful physical, or sometimes it's not so easeful, right? But it's a physical energy. Sometimes we call it breath energy that we experience in the body. What's pleasure? Pleasure is how the mind responds to that physical experience. The body conditions the mind. So there's this flow of energy throughout the body and the mind. So pleasure is really a mental movement that you may experience in the body. The mind responds with pleasant, pleasant. I like this. I like this. I like this. Pleasant. I like this. So pleasure is a mental quality. It's a mental quality. One way you can maybe think and understand this is, well, I'll use a story of my own. You know, when I was a kid, I know this sounds crazy, I didn't like pizza. You know, I found it really unpleasant. You know, I was a weird kid. You know, time went on, I found pizza the most pleasurable thing in the world. I loved it. You know, pizza didn't change. What changed was my mind. What changes what was my mind? The pleasure is a mental movement in response to a physical experience. So we develop this rapture and energy through the body, spread this rapture and energy through the body, and then we have to find uh, just the right amount. Because if the rapture and energy, you know, and some of you may have experienced this, if it gets too strong, it's actually unpleasant. You know, if it's not strong enough, it's not going to suffuse the body. But if it gets too strong, it can be jaggedy, right? And it's not really pleasant. So what we learn to do is to regulate the flow of energy. You can do that to some extent by inclining the mind. So, you know, generally for us what it is, is, you know, we get that energy flowing and then we just soften it, soften it, soften it. So it gets just right. When it gets just right, it becomes really pleasurable. I mean, you can even probably do it to some extent now. Feel the energy in the body. You know, and then just soften it to the point where it's really pleasurable, to the point where the mind goes, pleasure. You see that? You know, you soften that energy, you get it just right, and then the mind registers it as pleasure, but you have to get that energy just right. You know, when I first learned to do this, I was talking to somebody about this in one of the interviews. Uh, you know, I didn't really know quite how to, and my skill wasn't undeveloped, and I was doing some long retreats, and, you know, and I was kind of learning how to spread, you know, and I would get the energy, and it would be really going fast and strong, you know, and I thought, make it stronger, make it, you know, it's like, I was very zealous, you know, and, and it started to get really painful. You know, I, I said to Tan Jeff, like, my chest hurts. You know, I, I feel like I'm having a heart attack. 
He goes, yeah, I know, that's what happens. Thanks, you know? You know? Uh, you know, and sometimes it would get so agitated that, and I, and I couldn't change, I couldn't soften it. But over time, you know, you learn, it's the art of the meditation. You learn to, so that it's just right. And really, the energy, it's just like a very soft, gentle, very soft, gentle energy that we feel. And then, of course, what we do is we just keep working with that so it becomes really solid, it becomes really consistent, you know, so over days, weeks, months, years, so that, you know, it's something that you can just, you know, it's not something that just goes away like that. It's just like always there, and then you can call it up in all postures. So that's the real mark of jhana, is that you can call it up wherever you are, like right now. It's like before we, before I gave the talk, well, I'm going to say, I'll say something about that in a minute, about that, because I'll fit it in with something else, actually. Uh, so when the pleasure is just right, when the energy is just right and we experience that pleasure, the mind wants to stay there. It's content. And sometimes as you really start to develop that first jhana, there's this feeling of contentedness. So it's, I can't really describe it. I've you know, I felt it a few times. It's just like, I'm happy just to be right here. You know, it's like, wow, that's pretty, you know, it's like the mind is just happy to be in the body. I'm home. This is a good place to be. So all of that is very, very doable for all of us, but it's a process, right? I mean, we may be meditating and the body may not be pervaded, as the Sutta says, with rapture and pleasure. There may be some. There may be some. Good enough. Right? We've talked about this for years on retreats, you know, the Thai attitude of good enough. And there's a little, you know, but the Sutta says this. No. There's a little rapture, a little pleasure. Good enough. Good enough. That's what I talked about this morning. Bring attention to what's there. It's a practice of small things. Begin to learn to touch into what's there. You know, right now, you could probably touch into a little bit of rapture, a little bit of pleasure. You know, that's how you develop it. By touching into it, it's a cause for its re-arising. So you just touch into it over and over and over again. It's a practice of small things. You learn to touch into it in the meditation, in the walking, in the dining room, when you're listening to the Dharma talk. Dharma talk will be a lot better if you do that. Do that, please. <laughs> right now, right now. So you practice with this on the retreat, you know, when you're in the dining room, you know, when you're, when you're walking to the dining room, when you're in your room tonight. One of the real interesting things about the cultivation of pleasure is that it requires effort, right? I mean, that's what the teaching of the faculties tells us. You know, effort leads to mindfulness, leads to concentration. Evaluation requires effort, requires spreading, requires effort. It's a real paradox, right? You know, if we want pleasure, we have to make more effort. In many ways, effort is the proximate cause of pleasure. 
It's very countercultural, right? It's very countercultural because we think, and this is important to understand because our minds and you know our, our understanding and our relationship to pleasure for most of us is that it should, what that means is I have to make less effort. You know, if I have to make a lot of effort, that can't be pleasurable. So, you know, we sort of have to revolutionize the way that we think. We have to revision the way that we think. That's what Nietzsche said you have to do. You have to revision your think, revise your thinking. You know, because we think that less effort leads to pleasure. It's like I said, you know, the culture is really designed to deliver pleasure. Uh, that's very, you know, that requires very little effort. You know, if you want to make a lot of money, you know, develop something that seems pleasurable that requires very little effort to obtain. You know, we're not here to make money. Sorry, we're here to be happy. You know, and that requires effort. You know, think about, uh, you know, the way that the culture is in terms of its relationship to pleasure. You know, when I was a kid, back in the day, you know, you wanted to watch a movie, you had to go to the movie theater. That was, that was your only option. Yeah. Then, at a certain point, I was into my 30s by then, you know, they had these things, these DVDs. You know, you got this machine and you went to the store and you bought a DVD. This is incredible and I can go watch it at home. Then they came up with Netflix. It was like... <laughs> Thank God I don't have to go to the store and wait on that line and all those people in the st- and ah oh, thank God I can just get that DVD in the mail and put it in the machine and then they came up with streaming. Do you notice that it's like there's no way I'm going to put a DVD in the damn machine. It's like that requires so much freaking effort. Got to take it out of the box, turn the DVD player. It's like forget it. I'm not going through all that. <laughs> you know, when I first started teaching uh, Anapanasate, what we're, what we're practicing, uh, I asked Hanji, you know, and I, I, you know, I practiced it for a while myself, and then I started teaching it, and uh, I asked Han Jeff, I said, should I teach it to beginners? And he said, yeah, teach it to beginners. And when I first started teaching it, uh, so I would, you know, that was sort of the breath meditation class that we taught. Uh, about half the class was experienced people, people who had been practicing for years and had never done this. They would take the course and they go, why didn't they tell us this? This is unbelievable. Some people were mad. Why didn't they tell us this? You know, so half the people was experienced people and half the people were new people. You know, so I would give the teaching and usually by the end of the course, half the class was still there, and that was the experienced people. And what I realized was the new people didn't have enough conviction yet to put the kind of effort into the practice that they needed to put into it to develop pleasure. You know, so then we started, we went back to the old format and started teaching beginner's classes. Conviction, if you have that conviction, you'll make the effort, you'll practice mindfulness, you'll develop concentration. So as we start to develop this pleasure, what happens, of course, is that we begin to see our resistance to it, our resistance to pleasure. It's an extraordinary thing, right? You know, it's an extraordinary thing that we're so resistant to pleasure. The Buddha was resistant, greatly resistant, because his teachers that he was studying with were ascetics. You know, when they found out the Buddha was 
you know, doing, you know, I mean, he, he really didn't want to do it. And when they found out he was doing it, they, you know, they cast him aside. You know, so they said, look at the, what he's doing, that, living that life of luxury. You know, when I came to the practice, the teachers that I studied with, don't develop pleasure. Don't develop pleasure. You know, and I think a lot of that comes from, you know, just the culture. We have a fear of pleasure. We have a fear of pleasure. You know, Freud talked about this, you know. You know, he said, you know, in, in when he talked about the pleasure principle, you know, that as human beings with being human animals with a human mind, we seek pleasure. But we're afraid that if we start seeking pleasure, we're going to give in to our animal tendencies, you know, and just become out of control. So as culture developed, you know, it developed uh, what he called the reality principle. You know, we'll put aside that seeking of pleasure for, uh, you know, what a friend of mine would call the white picket fence, you know, the family, the house, the kids, the driveway, all of that, you know. And what we do, he said, is we repress pleasure. The problem is you can't repress it. You can't repress it. So we act out, you know, we're always going to go looking for it. And that's the problem. We're always going to go looking for it. So in our practice, we don't repress pleasure. We don't repress, repress pleasure. We develop wholesome pleasure. See, the Buddha found a way out of that conundrum. He found a way out of that conundrum. Develop a wholesome pleasure. <clears throat> A kind of the kind of pleasure that if you develop it uh, will uh, will placate the animal brain. Yeah. Yeah, it's an extraordinary teaching because it's a way out of so much suffering that as human beings that we have. I mean, to me, it, it could be a revolutionary teaching for the world, and that's of course it is. You know, in terms of the Buddhist teachings. You know, it's a way that we can meet our human experience skillfully, wisely, compassionately. Because we have to learn to deal with pleasure skillfully, and the Buddha found a way to do that. Not repressing, not chasing after external sense pleasure. This wholesome pleasure, we're not relying on external food sources, which are limited. You know, we're not hurting others. You know, the Buddha said that, you know, the, the fight for external sense pleasures leads to conflict amongst people and ultimately leads to war. And that's what leads to war. I want my share of this pleasant experience. So we're not hurting others. We're not hurting the environment. It's a reliable pleasure. You know, even the streaming movie, you know, it might not be any good. And it'll be over pretty quick. Then what are you going to do? Well, I guess that's why they have so many on there. You know? But it's a wholesome pleasure ultimately because it leads to awakening. So all this is kind of in a way of saying we don't have to shy away from it. Or we have to see when we're shying away from it. You know, I see that in myself. You know, I shouldn't be doing this. You know, it's like, I hope nobody finds out that I'm, I'm developing, you know, Tanjev says, nobody has to know. You, could, <laughs> you know, you could be sitting there and nobody needs to know that you're in a bliss state. You know, but I still feel guilty. You don't understand, Tanjev, I feel guilty. You know, I thought, you know, it's like, boy, you talk about this a lot. 
You know, you know, gave a Dharma talk about this on Sunday night a few weeks ago. And you know, we talk about this so much, but we need to. Because we need to be reminded and encouraged. You know, if you go to the monastery, it's like every day, all day long, this is what they're talking about. If you read the suttas, this is what they're talking about. We need this ongoing reinforcement. This is an important, this is essential to the, to the Buddha's path. You know, when I sat down to give this talk, I, of course, had just been in my room going over my notes. So, you know, I knew it was okay to develop pleasure and that was something I could do. So, you know, just before I started, I just sat here and just went into a full body awareness and just connected with ease and pleasure and the body is right there. You know, it's really in good place to give the Dharma talk. You know, but I might not have done that if I hadn't just been up in my room working on it. You know, that's why we need to keep reinforcing it and reinforcing it and reinforcing it. It was the first thing the Buddha talked about when he, after he became awakened, you know, he gave his first sermon, and it was those five ascetics, of course, and part of the reason probably was because those ascetics there, that he talked about, what he talked about, the first thing that he said is that this is a middle path. It's a path of, it's not a path, and this is the path that we follow, that I follow. It's not a path of seeking happiness and external sense pleasure, and it's not a path of denying pleasure. It's a path of developing a wholesome pleasure. This is the middle path. The first thing he said, and then he set the wheel of the Dharma in motion. Now, that was really the beginning of the setting the wheel of the Dharma in motion. Then he gave the teaching on the Four Noble Truths. Meditation should be pleasurable. I mean, that in itself is a radical idea. I mean, when I first thought of meditation, it's like these Zen guys, you know, it's like, I'm going to endure as much pain as I possibly can. But our goal is that the meditation is pleasurable. Now, it takes, it's going to take us a while to get there. You know, it took me, you know, and, and it's not always pleasurable, but, you know, if we practice little by slowly, we get there. We touch in, we cultivate those small things, and we move toward the meditation being pleasurable. So it can be somewhat pleasurable, and it can be more pleasurable, and then ultimately meditation becomes a pleasurable experience. And guess what? Then we'll do it. We'll meditate, we'll develop concentration, and out of that we'll develop wisdom. But the meditation must be pleasurable. You know, my meditation was anything but pleasurable. Anything but pleasurable. And my relationship to it was I didn't like it. You know, the first thing that Tan Jeff said when I went to practice with him was, you know, I had a lot of pain in the body, and of course I was like focusing on it like we do. He said, stop doing that. Start putting your mind somewhere else in the body. Put the pain aside. That was life-changing. That was life-changing. You know, put the pain aside. You know, then when I did that, I was more able to stay with the breath. <clears throat> And it was a very, you know, that was such a compassionate teaching, such a compassion. Why are you putting yourself in that place and reinforcing a lifetime of putting yourself in painful places? It was a, it was a life changing, a life altering 
movement. You know, we do this out of compassion for ourselves. We do this out of compassion for ourselves. We've suffered enough. We've suffered enough. We've experienced enough pain. We've shed enough tears. We've shed enough tears. You know, we need to give ourselves a warm embrace. You know, we need people to give ourselves a warm embrace, but ultimately we need, you know, ultimately we can only rely on ourselves, you know, for that warm embrace. We have to learn to give it to ourselves and love it and love ourselves. Love ourselves. And this is what we're doing when we're cultivating this pleasure. This wholesome pleasure leads to awakening. This wholesome pleasure leads to awakening because when we develop a wholesome inner pleasure, then we're in a position to look at our suffering. You know, when, we're all, when all we know is pain and suffering, we're not in a position to look at pain and suffering because we want so badly to get rid of it, we can't sit still enough long enough to look at it. You know, as my teacher, Tan Jeff, says, you know, we're desperate to get rid of the suffering. You know, and if you're desperate to get rid of something, you're really not going to be able to understand it and develop the wisdom that you need to develop so that you can let go of it. You know, but if we have an internal pleasure, we know that, you know, part of our experience is pleasurable. We can always put our attention on what's pleasurable. And now we're in a strong position from which to look at suffering, from which to understand suffering, from which to let go of clinging. So it's essential for liberation that we develop this internal pleasure. You know, I just noticed this so much in my life. You know, there's experiences that, of suffering, you know, that I've had over the, over the years, the last number of years, and they don't bother me nearly as much because I can rest in a pleasurable place. It's like not such a big deal because it's not all of my experience. I can put that to the side and be in a pleasurable place. Eh. It's not such a big deal. It doesn't bother me nearly the way that it did before that, that suffering. Because I have a place to reside. I have always used that metaphor. Uh, it's one of my better metaphors, I have to admit. I don't mind saying it again and again. Of the adolescent. You know, the adolescent, you know, who goes out into the world, you know, and starts to deal with the world, you know, and starts to meet with difficulty. That's like kind of, remember being an adolescent, you know? You know, all of a sudden, certain kids don't like you. You know, you like a particular member of the gender that you like, and they don't like you. You get rejected. You get bad grades. You know, it's hard, you know? But if you have a loving and compassionate family and home to go to, it's not so bad. It's not so bad, right? Because you have love. You have a warm embrace in your lives. If you don't have that, it's really tough. You know, it's really tough. You know, so I didn't have that, so I needed to find something that I could find solace in. So I went to, like we all did, or like we do, sense pleasure, drugs, alcohol. You know? So this pleasure, this wholesome pleasure is liberating because it enables us, it puts us in a position where we can meet our suffering and find freedom from suffering. So, you know, the message is feast, feast on jhana. This is what the Buddha said, feast on pleasure. 
How very happily we live, he said, free from hostility amongst those who are hostile. You know, you're going to be hostile if all you know is suffering. You know, but if you have some nice pleasure, you know, you, you don't need to be so hostile. It's like, ah, why bother, you know, to get, you know, I'm not like a raw nerve. How very happily we live, free from hostility amongst those who are hostile. Amongst hostile people, free from hostility we dwell. How very happily we live, free from misery among those who are miserable. I mean, if all you know is suffering, you're going to be miserable. You know, but if you know suffering and pleasure, eh, you won't be so miserable. You could see that like on the retreat, you know, at the beginning may have like just all we knew was suffering, you know, and it's such a painful place to be. You know, and then maybe we start to develop some pleasure and it's like, ah, you know, this is okay. My experience is okay. There's room for both of these experiences and I'm okay with where I am, even though it may be painful. How very happily we live, free from misery amongst those who are miserable. How very happily we live, free from busyness amongst those who are busy. How very happily we live, we who have nothing, we will feed on rapture like the radiant gods. So we feed on this rapture in the meditation, in all postures. You know, when we're doing walking meditation, when we're in the dining hall, in our lives, walking down the street, you know, we learn to rest in this place of pleasure. Our experience of life becomes pleasurable. You know, we're in a strong position to meet our lives and to make the most of our lives. So this development of this wholesome pleasure is life-changing, is life-changing. So we have to make this a priority to develop pleasure, internal pleasure, out of compassion, out of love for ourselves, out of our wish to be happy. How very happily we live, we who have nothing, we will feed on rapture like the radiant gods. So let's just close our eyes for a minute.